passage that we just read. Um, I'm going to focus primarily probably on the first half of that. So in my Bible, that's kind of done in two sections. Uh, so uh, Mark 6, 1 to 6. Uh, I will will touch on briefly um, verses sort of 7 through to 13. Uh, as you can imagine, it's a relatively heavier passage, that one. It's really about a bunch of people who reject Jesus. And I'm talking about rejecting Jesus today, okay? So that's a, that's a relatively heavy passage. So uh, is it okay if I start with something a little bit lighter on the theme of rejection? Okay, just to get us into it and let you know that I'm not like a doom and gloom guy all the time, okay? So um, as I said, I went to Bible college when I was uh, 18 and went to Sweden. And when I went there, I was very Northern Irish, if I can put it mildly, okay? So I went out there with do you remember, like, the, uh, this is the late noughties, okay? So, uh, 2008, I had, like, the long, you know, hair, the McFly haircut, that, that look. I had the Canterbury tracksuit bottoms and hoodies. That was me. Um, and when, when you go to and you meet people from another culture, uh, you've got a couple of options. One of them is that you can sort of carefully and gently introduce them to your own culture. Uh, and the other option, which is what I chose, is to baptize them with fire in your culture. And uh, so I went out there and was just full-on Northern Irish from the off. Um, now, one of the things that we do in Northern Ireland, I didn't know this was culturally unique at the time, okay? I just thought this was how people got on. Uh, if you like someone and if you want to be friendly to them, uh, even if you've only just met them, what do you do? You mock the life out of them, right? Right from the very beginning. So we had all these nice, gentle, quiet, reserved Scandinavian Christians uh, and me. And I spoke quickly, and I do speak quickly. I'm going to speak quickly today. Um, I spoke quickly, a bit of an accent that they had never heard before. So they only understood glimpses, and every single glimpse that they understood horrified them. Okay, that was my early experience in uh, Sweden. Um, I met Danny early on in that process, and for some reason, I started, well, I liked her early on, but for some reason, she didn't reciprocate quite as quickly, and I can't imagine why that would have been at that time. Uh, but I remember uh, asking her out uh, before she had developed any feelings for me. Now, to this day, she insists that her, the main thrust of what she said was no. Um, but Bulgarian, you know, girl, Moved, just moved to Sweden, English was her second language, and she was trying to let me down gently. So what I kind of heard was, I want to prioritize God this year, which is a great way to let someone down, by the way. But my basic response was, ah, me too, you know, let's do it together. Um, so, uh, so I was ex- essentially acting as her auxiliary boyfriend by about November, and then became her actual boyfriend by the process of osmosis over the next few months. And then, do you know what? Hey, we're married now. So it turns out I was right, everyone. And I stand by that as a way to win over a girl's heart. Be really Northern Irish and just, you know, ignore or, or misunderstand the, the initial put down. Anyway, we're talking about rejection and we're talking about a culture that rejects Jesus because uh, that is what is happening in this passage here where we have this culture, we have this city that rejects Jesus. And uh, what I suppose what I want to ask is what is the mission, what is the responsibility, what is the purpose of a church in a culture that rejects Jesus? Um, right now, I would say in the Western world, we are seeing a widespread cultural rejection of Jesus. Um, 
you can, it bears out in just the raw data, church attendance data. We've gone from, I think, the highest, what was it, 1980s, uh, it was about six and a half million weekly Sunday church attendance in the UK. That has now dropped to three million, but the population has increased, so the percentage drop is higher than that. It's from 11 or 12 percent, 12 percent down to five. Anglican church membership at its peak uh, in the 1930s was uh, four million. It's now down to under a million. Um, and uh, and the, uh, increasing in the rate of decline as well. They're, they're estimating that because of COVID in part, that perhaps one in five Church of England churches may shut in the next 18 months or so. That's, that's um, some of the statistics that, that have been thrown out there. Now, whether or not that happens, whether or not that returns, we don't know. But statistically, there is a sense of our nation turning it's back on Jesus of some sort of rejection of Jesus that's happening culturally. Um, not just in that, but I would say in terms of worldview, ideology, what we believe as a people, we have moved away from, and in fact, I would say have, have not just moved, drifted away from, but have chosen to reject um, a lot of the, the sort of Christian biblical underpinnings of our society that we have historically had. Um, right from sort of the, the post-Roman period in Britain with the monks and, and all of that retaking uh, the Western world for Jesus. And it was Irish monks went to England and re-evangelized Europe from there. Um, Christianity for, no, there was issues within Christianity, but broadly it was considered that Christianity is a positive thing. If you're a Christian, that is a morally good thing. To be Christian people were good people. And that was how it was considered, really right up until, I would say, about the 1980s. Uh, you could probably, I mean, this is, you know, none of these things are overly defined, but you could say that the moral majority movement in the United States was probably the last vestige of that sense of society saying that Christian beliefs are morally good. Um, in the 90s and noughties, then what I would say is we had uh, what I would call like a soft postmodernism. Uh, a, a, it's good for you, but it's not good for me. It's good, that's uh, Christianity. If you want to be that, you be that. Good for you, not for me. Uh, and now, in maybe the last decade, what we have seen is uh, actually it's not good at all. Like that soft postmodernism has hardened. And so we've gone from in a single generation from the 1980s, take the late 70s through to now, we've gone from Christianity is good for all through to good for you, but not for me, and now into not good at all in one generation. So we are in a, a culture that I believe is in many ways rejecting Jesus, rejecting the message of Jesus. And that is in some ways, I see a lot of similarities between what happened here in Nazareth and what is happening in our world today. And we as the church, we absolutely want to change that. We don't want to go, that's great. It's not to say there aren't issues with how Christendom has unfolded in history. It doesn't mean it was all good. But the reality is we do want to see the message and gospel of Jesus Christ advance in this nation. We want to see it influence every part of this nation. And we don't believe that this is just a Sunday thing. This is a, a universal message for everyone that influences every part of life, everything that we do, and we want to see uh, the message of Jesus advance in the United Kingdom, in Northern Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, where, whatever side of the community you're from, so I don't offend anyone here in the room today. We want to see the kingdom of God established here on earth. We want to do that. 
And yet what we're seeing is it seems to be some, some cultural rejection of that. So what's happening here in Nazareth? Nazareth is this small town. It's about 500 people. And uh, Jesus essentially has put Nazareth on the map, okay? No one really knew what Nazareth was. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like it's a, a backwater, you know, town up in the north. People don't really know about it, don't really care about it. Uh, and Jesus has grown up there, but has moved to Capernaum. So he didn't live there. We don't know how long he lived there for as an adult, but it wasn't his uh, current place of residence. It was his hometown historically, but it wasn't where he was living. Uh, and he, this is his second trip to Nazareth. So his first trip is where he goes into the synagogue, and many of you may know it from Luke 4. He reads a passage from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind you know the thing, right? Well, maybe you do. Anyway, you know the gist of what I'm saying. And they reject him then and try to throw him off a cliff. Now, Jesus comes back to Nazareth at this point and goes once again to speak to them. Um, interestingly, he's not there. As like a, he's not just visiting home. Like, and this, he's not doing a GoFundMe there, right? That's not why he's shown up there. He has shown up there because he is once again going to give them another opportunity to hear what he has to say. Nazareth, I, I think, has a lot of similarities to us. Uh, the first one is this. Nazareth had been exposed to Jesus. Nazareth had been exposed to Jesus. This culture, which is now rejecting Jesus, and it's interesting, it's not just an individual rejecting Jesus. The whole city goes, we don't want this guy. You're not leading us. You're not our God. We're not submitting to you. They had been exposed to Jesus. Their main obstacle in Nazareth was not so much that they didn't know who Jesus was. It was that they did know who Jesus was. Or, or, or rather, maybe they thought they knew who Jesus was. They had had some prior exposure to Jesus. They had what I would describe as like a false familiarity with Jesus. A sense of, yeah, we kind of know what that guy's about. We kind of know what he's up to. We kind of know him. And, and to be honest, we, we, you know, they weren't willing to allow that to shift their, their first impression of him was the one that they held on to. Um, everyone says first impressions are important. Um, uh, uh, the reality is, yeah, they, they are. They are very hard to get over. Uh, I, I, many of you may know Rory McIlroy, golfer number one in the world for a while. So I went to school. I was the year below Rory McIlroy in school, okay? So I went to Sullivan. That's where he went. Everyone around my age in Sullivan, we all claim to know Rory McIlroy, okay? We've been living vicariously off his fame for quite some time, right? I do not know Rory McIlroy, but I, when you find, you know, you meet, uh, and God bless him, Americans love a bit of celebrity culture, and so when they find out that Rory McIlroy is my cousin, they, their minds are blown out, unbelievable how excited they get. The reality is, I, I don't know Rory McIlroy, but I saw him. Right? I, I saw Rory McIlroy as a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, 15-year-old. I, I don't, don't have a particularly negative impression of him. I didn't have a bad experience with him. I didn't have a particularly good experience. I just He was a guy who was in school, and I knew he played golf. But if I met him now, he might be... I mean, I know I'm a relatively different person than how I was at 14, he would still have to get over whatever impression that was. He would still have to overcome that first impression. 
Now the issue in Nazareth was that these people had seen Jesus grow up and they had seen him. They'd never seen him sin because he had never sinned. But Jesus was fully human and had human weakness like us, right? So they saw him learn to walk. They saw him not be great at carpentry and probably improve in that skill set. They saw him probably cry for some reason. Now, because crying's not a sin, right? So he did those things. He did all those normal human things. And they viewed him through that first impression lens of Jesus, that distant, we've seen him and we think we know what that guy's about. They weren't there at his baptism. The baptism didn't happen anywhere near this, where there was the revelation of the Father speaking over the Son and sending the Spirit, saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. They weren't traveling around with him in his ministry. They weren't there. They weren't there for that. And so what they had was a presumption over Jesus is like this, and whatever we hear him say now, whatever he does now, it will not trump our prior presumed notion of what Jesus is like. Now, I believe our culture is kind of like that. I believe Western culture, our society, or the average person in our world today has that because we have some exposure to Jesus. People have heard things about Jesus. People have heard Jesus is like this. They have heard uh, phrases, some Bible verses. They've driven past that barn on the Bangor Road. I don't know if it still says it, where it's got John 3.16 on the side of it, right? They've seen that. That's their reality. But what they've done is they've assumed that their limited exposure is full exposure, that what they assume Jesus to be, what those phrases are, and what they believe them to mean that they are accurate. So uh, when we say, for instance, if you ask the average person, what do you know about Jesus or what do Christians believe about Jesus? He's a nice guy and he loves us. Which, by the way, yeah, he does love us. But their assumption is that that love looks something like what our 21st century manifestation of love looks like. That that is agreement with everything, that that is high-fiving everything I do, tacit approval of all my actions, no, absolutely nothing that he would have to say about anything that I do in life. Now, I have a two-year-old. I know that love does not look like that, okay? Because he's two, he doesn't know that much yet. Love is not like that. But the reality is our culture, our world, has a, a false familiarity with Jesus and they read Jesus through that lens. And that's one of our, our biggest challenges when it comes to Jesus is that we have been exposed to him. But we have taken that first impression and allowed that to define everything else as opposed to letting Jesus speak for himself. Second, the second way in which I believe Nazareth is like us is that they had a secularized, secular view of Jesus. That is, they liked Jesus the man. They viewed Jesus as a guy. What does it say? It says, uh, where did this man get these things? And it goes on about, he's a carpenter and he's the son of Mary and his brothers and sisters are here. All true because Jesus absolutely was a man. Like he was a man, but he wasn't just a man. They didn't recognize, so they recognized the humanity of Jesus. They did not recognize the divinity of Jesus. They did not recognize the glory of Jesus. They did not talk in any way about, oh, this is the one whose mother had an angel come and speak to him about his birth. 
This is the one who, who, has, uh, who has astounded the highest scholars in the Talmud, age 12. They, they didn't view him through that lens. They merely took the, the human perspective of him. They, they didn't even give him the dignity of calling him like a prophet. He was just a guy, just a guy. They don't want that part of the Jesus story. They want the human Jesus. And once again, do you know what that speaks to, I believe, our, our 21st century natural default view of Jesus, where, where we think that Jesus is, do you know what, good teacher, good guy, basically on our level, basically like us, like just he was a good guy who lived a long time ago. And this, this, what this does actually, and, and this is a manifestation of it as well, is, is this is a form of, of idolatry where we take Jesus and we conform him to what we want him to be. Like, we are natural idol makers as human beings. John Calvin, I get to quote him here because I believe you guys are reformed. Uh, so, John Calvin, the human heart is an idol factory, you know? Like, that is what he said. Uh, we are idol makers and we will often tweak Jesus to look like whatever our ultimate God is. And in the 21st century, and I believe in Nazareth as well, the ultimate God is me. And not like actually me, but you know, yourself, self. We love ourselves and we will fashion a Jesus who we do not view as divine. We will fashion after our own image. Like we will either be conformed to the image of Jesus or we will conform him to our Jesus. Or to, to our image, sorry. You know, we will either look at him as he is and seek to become like that. Or we will look at us as we are and seek to make Jesus like that. We will either bow the knee to him or we will seek to make him bow the knee to us. We will take Jesus and we will say, do you know what? I, I, I do not acknowledge your authority over me. I acknowledge my own rule and reign. And if we do not acknowledge Jesus as God, we will turn him into us. And that is what we do in our world today, which is much easier, by the way, than having Jesus as God, because you do not need to do anything. There's no challenge, no change, no repentance, no sin, none of that. It is just, I am right, and Jesus should look like me. And that's the world that we live in. That's the reality that we see today. We talk, and what we do is we call it being true to self. And uh, I don't believe it is being true to self. But ultimately, if we call it being true to self, but it's with a false Jesus, it does not work. So, so we imagine that Jesus looks like a 21st century millennial in his ethics and his ideology and his beliefs and his claims, probably his dress sense too, probably wore oversized hoodies, you know, whatever people are into these days. I'm not cool anymore, so I don't know. But whatever that is, we assume Jesus is like that. Unfortunately, this what I would, call, I would call this self-deceit. I would say we're tricking ourselves whenever we view Jesus this way because when, when we say Jesus is on our level, I think we go even further than that. Or we say he's only on our level. I think we go further than that. Um, I mean, even if we only went that far, we, we, it would be inappropriate to say that God is exactly like us, that the God-man, this divine, perfect person who came as God in the flesh, to say that he's just like us, I mean, that's, that's like treating a human like a dog. It's like, it's just not an appropriate way to treat Jesus. But ultimately, I, I believe that whenever you put Jesus on your level, you say, I think he's only on my level, what you ultimately end up doing, and what they do here in Nazareth, is that you put him slightly lower. 
You don't just put him at your level, you put him slightly lower. The, the language that they use of him is, is he's the carpenter. Now, there's a, there's a wide semantic domain. There's a wide range of things that carpenter can mean, anything from manual laborer up to like architect. Um, so, so it might not have been offensive, but ultimately, no one else in Scripture ever called Jesus the carpenter. They called him a rabbi. They said, who do the people say I am? They say you're the prophet. They say, they say you're, you're Jeremiah. They say you're Elijah. In Nazareth, they didn't give him that respect. They put him as a, essentially like, like you're not even on our level. They call him the son of Mary, which, which appears to be like a hint of infidelity, like them going, not the son of Joseph. You know, most people would have gone, you're, you're the son of your father. That was the typical thing. If you said son of Mary, well, you're, you're kind of accusing his mom, of infidelity, which would have been the assumption in that society. And so when we say he's just like us, what we're actually saying is actually he's slightly lower than us. We absolutely do the same thing today. When we say Jesus is just like us, we do not mean that he's like us in the sense of like an, a boss who gets to tell us what to do or a policeman who has authority or, or, or a king or a ruler like, like not even a human authority. We don't put him on that level. He is at best a consultant who gets roped in to help us with our needs and our desires and whatever we want to do. We will borrow a little bit from him to help us on our way. Not, not someone who, gets a, who has the right to tell us to do anything at all. Uh, when we say Jesus is just a good teacher, what most of the time we mean is I'm a slightly better teacher than Jesus because I'm going to pick and choose the bits that I like and improve on the teachings of Jesus to make them more suitable to my wishes, desires, and wants. We will either view Jesus as God or we will view ourselves as God. That is what this passage is showing us here, that you know what, if you do not accept that Jesus is God, you will reject him and you will put yourself in his place. There is no middle ground. He is either God or he is not. And what this does, unfortunately, we often do this, I think, out of a sense of, well, we want to make Jesus seem better than he is. Like, because there are things, and there, there are things in every culture, every society, all times where Jesus rubs us, us, uh, us up the wrong way. Jesus will challenge every single society that has ever existed. He will confront part of them. Like, whatever that is, he will challenge them. But what we do is, if we seek to to mold Jesus, to make him more palatable, to make him seem better, more acceptable, what we end up doing is actually ruining the bits of Jesus that we want to keep. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Narnia. If you don't know the story of of, uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, four kids go into a wardrobe. Out the back, there is a, a large country called Narnia that's wintry. They meet a couple of beavers and the beavers say you need to go see a lion. That's the basic gist of the story. If you haven't seen Narnia, you're thinking, what on earth kind of story is that? Okay, talking animals, it's all good. Anyway, the, the beavers say this to, one of the, to, to Susan, who's one of the characters, because uh, they're figuring out that Aslan, this Christ figure, is not human. And uh, the beavers say this, they go, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I still feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? 
Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. You see, human nature, I think, desires a safe God. Whatever society we're in, we're always going to try and make Jesus a little bit safer for our society, that he doesn't confront us quite as much as he otherwise would. Unfortunately, no, it's not unfortunately, but unfortunately for us, when we try to do that, what we do is, is because God's attributes are one, because he is everything that he is, you cannot subtract just part of Jesus without diminishing everything in Jesus. It, to me, it's like you're listening to beautiful music, whatever you consider beautiful music to be, right, through your earphones. If you turn it down, you turn the whole thing down. You can't just turn down part of it. Now, I know there's stereos that have like bass and treble. But, in, you know, hypothetically, right, if you're basic earphones, you, you cannot only turn down part of it. You have to turn down all of it. You lose all of it. When you take away any part of Jesus, when you say we don't want this part of you, you also lose the part that you're trying to keep or protect. So for us, right, if we turn down the divinity of Jesus, if we turn down the glory of Jesus, in order to keep the love of Jesus, which is probably why we would try and do that, the the intellectual reasoning behind it, we actually end up losing it, right? Because we have love without holiness, we we have compassion uh, without purity, we have scars without resurrection. What we end up doing is we say that because God's holiness looks like Our holiness, his love's got to look like our love. And our love is nothing compared to the love of Jesus. Like, like our love is not sacrificial the way the love of Jesus is sacrificial. Our love is not self-giving the way the love of Jesus is self-giving. We look at love and we say, do you know what? Um, God loves us. Well, yeah, of course he does, because love is just a basic tolerance. It's a basic acceptance. It's, it's, it's not the kind of love that Scripture tells us that Jesus has for us, that God has for us. If, if, if he looks like us in one way, he's got to look like us in every way. And we lose all of who he is. In my salvation story, so I, I, I grew up in a Christian home, um, but like most people who grew up in a Christian home, you have that period in your teenage years where you sort of drift and you're figuring out this transition between your parents' faith and your own faith. And, uh, you know, you, you do silly stuff. And, you know, you, that, that's most of your, um, would be many of our experiences if you grew up in a Christian home. Um, I, I was in that place and had really minimal interest in God, still loosely attending church, still going um, but, but for friends and, you know, for, for no other reason than that. I wasn't there because of God or, or anything like that. Um, and the thing, the two things that made a, a significant impact in, in my life, one of them was um, my dad gave me a, a prophetic word. Um, so he sensed that God was telling him to share something with me. And uh, it was a confrontational word. And I was gentle, but it was a confrontation. It was you're going in a bad direction and you need to pay attention. Um, And that started a process of really a few months for me of wrestling with God. I was deeply uncomfortable wrestling with God. I mean, I was was not, I was like, well, like most teenagers, I'm going to run away from home. You know, that was kind of the thing. But like that was, it was this painful process and it was not pleasant to go through at all. Um, 
what happened was I was, uh, that, that resolved it ultimately was I was in a worship, it was at a Christian Summer Madness, some of you may know it, Christian Youth Festival down in the King's Hall. And uh, I saw one of my friends in church lifting his hands in worship. And we were what I would describe as like church cool, which is not actually cool, but cool in a church context. You know, we were the cool group. Not, not in any other context other than church. And it was unusual to see a friend lifting his hands, but I saw something real in what he was doing. It was real worship. And just part of me at that point went, look, I, whatever he's got, I, I want it. So I sort of put up a, a subtle, a sneaky, you know, one of those, um, you know, hand like that, and suddenly just felt the presence and love of God in a way that I, I never had before. It, was, it went from God is a hypothetical reality to my reality in one moment. I'm not saying everyone's salvation story looks like that, but, but here is the truth. We are not saved by a God who agrees with us. We are saved actually at the point where God disagrees with us and we go, Lord, you're right. It's, it's, it's called repentance. Like It is the message that Jesus then sends out his apostles to preach, is go and tell the people to repent, and they did. It is that, and, and it is not safe. It is not safe for our culture. It is not safe for your life. It is not safe to have a God who is holy and who is pure and who is just. But I can tell you this, that God is good. That God is so good. And we cannot make him safe and, and keep the love. Like the love of God is only radical if it is connected to his holiness. If he is pure if he is just in what he does. It is not that God is merely nice and he likes us. It is that he is holy and he loves us. And it goes beyond our understanding. He is bigger, greater, wilder, more profound, much less safe, and much, much better than any of us can ever imagine. They rejected the divinity of Jesus, and in rejecting the divinity of Jesus in Nazareth, they lost everything of Jesus. They lost it all because they did not recognize his divinity. Thirdly, they were offended by Jesus. Um, Jesus will absolutely offend everybody who does not view him as God. That is just undoubtedly true. And interestingly, in this scenario, they don't attack the message, they attack the messenger. They don't go, Jesus, we're going to engage you in a debate, we're going to refute anything that you say, we don't want to deal with that. They go, they basically say, you're arrogant. They go, you, 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 who are you to be, who's this guy showing up and talking like this? It is a rejection of his, his attitude, of him as a person, of his tone, you might say. Like that's what they go after. They don't go after content at all. And uh, without wanting to, I'm not meaning to be controversial, but, but, but it's in the passage. It says, uh, you know, that they were offended at Jesus just because we're offended does not mean that we're right, okay? And that is, that's an important message in the 21st century, is that offense does not mean that you're right. In this scenario, offense was a manifestation of a serious sin, unbelief, is what we're told. Jesus marveled over their unbelief. That unbelief was rejecting Jesus. That's what unbelief really, at its root, it is a rejection of God. It is a rejection of him. And they're saying, we, we reject your claims over us. This, this is where theology meets daily living. Um, 
every single person in this room, every single person in society is a theologian at heart, and your theology drives everything that you do. Because they rejected this idea even of Jesus being God, it drove their reaction to him. It met their daily reality and said, we will not submit to what you say. We will not accept you. We will reject you. Theology is deeply, deeply practical. So they would not um, bow the knee to this Jesus because they did not view him as God. And our society, and us as individuals, we will not bow the knee to Jesus the life coach. We will not bow the knee to Jesus the guru. We will not bow the knee to Jesus the only good teacher. We will not bow the knee to Jesus the archetype. We will only bow the knee to Jesus the God-man. That is the only Jesus that will not offend if we accept him as God. That is the only way. Now, now, for us, that often manifests in, in, in different ways in our society. Usually, it's, it's connected to those who are sharing the message of Jesus. Now, for us, we can be sinful. So, so like, don't get me wrong. Just because someone is offended at you does not mean you're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, okay? You can be offensive and it not be Christ-like, like you absolutely can. But there is an offense attached to the gospel, there is a sense in which the gospel is, as we're told this, it is a rock of offense. It is a stumbling stone. It is something that people who reject Jesus will stumble over, will struggle with, and will be offended by. So they were offended by Jesus because they rejected him as God. They were offended by him. And ultimately what that led to was they lost the blessing of Jesus. They lost the good things that Jesus was there to do. Jesus was not there to be mean. Like Jesus was in Nazareth to save souls, show them the kingdom of God, heal the sick, cast out demons. Like that's, that's what he's, that sounds, I don't know about you, that's, to me I think that sounds nice, you know? Like that sounds pretty good, a pretty radical thought on a Sunday that Jesus does nice things, right? I know I just said he's not nice, but you know what I mean. Like he, he, he was not there as, as an evil dictator to crush and oppress the people. He was there to liberate. He was there to set free. He was there to do the good things that a good God wants to do for his people. Because they would not honor him, they rejected him, they lost the benefits, they lost the blessing of his rule. It says that he could do no mighty work. And let's be clear, just because I've heard this taught badly on several occasions, Jesus did not cease to be God and lose his power at that point, right? He was not unable to overcome their unbelief. He wasn't unable to overcome their doubt. There will be no doubt on the day when he returns riding on the clouds and every knee bows. No one's going to be questioning, do you think that guy was God? Like they're going to go, yeah, pretty sure he was right. Either two reasons that it could be saying that he could do no mighty work. Either he simply allowed them to, to reject. They just didn't show up and he wasn't battering down the door to, you know, make them be healed. He wasn't hunting down the people that didn't want to be healed by him to lay hands on them. Might have been that. It also might be, and it may be a mix of the two. It also might be that uh, he... he um, morally, as in the nature of God, couldn't, uh, you know, morally heal people in a place that rejected him in that way. Maybe that, and it may have been both. The reality is that they rejected 
Jesus. And so Jesus rejected them. He, he, he left. And then he, in, the, next, in, the, in the, the sort of next portion of this passage, he tells his apostles as he's about to send them out, he says, they don't want you. I mean, shake, off, shake the dust off your feet and you go. That's, that's what he tells them to do. When we, when we have a false Jesus, a false familiarity with Jesus, and we have a secularized human Jesus, and we are offended at that Jesus, we lose the blessings of that Jesus. Now, that's a terrifying thought, by the way, for a culture to lose the blessing of Jesus. For Jesus to go, you have rejected me, and so I am rejecting you. That is a scary thought for us today. Fortunately, I'm not going to close on that thought because that would be a dark, dark place. So let's talk briefly, and I'll bring it into land with it, about what our response needs to be as the church, right? Done some theology, done some walking through the text. What do we do? Aside from national repentance, a move of God, the spirit falling on man and woman and child, you know, national revival, all of that. Unfortunately, look, that's what we need. We can't schedule that. I can't go national revival next Wednesday at four. Let's all show up. Okay. Be great if we could. It's not how it works. But nonetheless, I think even in a culture that seems to be going away from God, we as the church, and I say the church, I mean local churches, right? This group of people in this room, you have a responsibility and you have an authority from God in a culture like that. Jesus says of his church, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He, he, he talks about them and he says, you have influence and you have responsibility. You have something that you are called to do in that kind of world, in that kind of culture. It doesn't mean we have an ironclad guarantee of total success, right? In the same way that you have a responsibility to raise your kids well, doesn't have an ironclad guarantee that they're going to turn out exactly the way that you hope. But nonetheless, we have a responsibility. The first thing I think we need to do, let me give two. The first thing is this. We've got to get off the popularity drug as the church, okay? I, I was in conversation with... Um, a church leader in America it was the fastest growing church in America at the time. They were not mega, mega in terms of like 30,000, but like three, 4,000, big church. And I uh, was talking to, to their pastor, and they said, um, they're talking about biblical ethics, uh, and they said, look, we won't touch that um, because if we do, we have to give up on church growth. And he sort of go, I didn't say it. I thought, well, I should probably give up on church growth then. That would be a good strategy. But the reality is it's not actually about giving up on church growth. It's about defining church correctly. As in, church is the place where Jesus is Lord and we are called to teach everything that he has commanded us. So it's not really about not growing the church. It's about what is the church that you're growing? Like, what is that church? What is that church there to do? What is it there to be? In a world where false familiarity with Jesus is the number one problem, like we have to not start agreeing with that as the church in order to grow the church. We cannot do, great quote by Groucho Marx, goes, these are my principles, and if you don't like them, 
I have others. You know, like we can't be like that as the church. We can't, we can't go, look, let's do series that are just affirming everything that the world already believes. Let's take all of the offense, all of the claims of Jesus out of this in order to grow our organization. We, we just cannot do that. We cannot preach a false, secularized, non-divine, inoffensive Jesus in a world where that is the main problem. We can't do that. We absolutely cannot allow that to be our response. In fact, I would say that that is a guaranteed way not to change the culture because we need a mighty work. We need a mighty work. We need the power of God. And therefore, the church, this congregation, this group of people, and everyone like it across this city must be the place that honors Jesus as he is. We must be the place where we go, Jesus, everything that you are, all of it, the bits that challenge me, the bits that offend me, the, the, the bits that, that I don't know what to do with, the bits that cause me to pay a price in this nation and in this generation, I will honor them because that is who you are. That is who you are. And I love all of who you are, Jesus. And we want all of who you are in this church. We have to be a place where Jesus marvels not over the unbelief, but over the belief in the church. There are two occasions in Scripture where Jesus marvels. One of them is right here over the unbelief of, of Nazareth. The other one is over the Roman centurion, uh, over his faith. We want to be a church where Jesus marvels over our belief as the church. And that means honoring him as who he is. That means uh, maybe the second side of that is, is, is getting away from the, 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 the negative. Let's put it in the positive. We have to preach and teach and live as though Jesus is God. Because he is God. Because he is God. Our, our man-centered Christianity has to go. And Christ-centered Christianity has to reign in the church once again. If we're going to have any chance, I'm not saying we do in our generation. I, I believe God's going to win ultimately. But I don't know what's going to happen in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the next century. But if we're going to have any chance, the only hope is for a Christ-centered, Christ-preaching, Christ-loving, Jesus-honoring Christianity. That is the only way that this works out, anything like the way we would hope. That, that is it. We have to celebrate and love and declare the person of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, a sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir. Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. The only thing that is worth declaring, the only thing that, is, that, that gives any reason for me to stand here today and for you to listen to me is if we are talking about Jesus. Like, that's it. It's, he's the only hope of the world. He's the only hope for Belfast. He's the only hope for every individual, every society, every nation. It is only Jesus. And so we have to lift up and worship Jesus in the church. Like, if he's not worshipped here, let, let me be clear. If Jesus is not worshipped and honoured as God in his own church, he is not worshipped and honoured as God anywhere on earth. This is the only place where we get to talk about this and do this and sing this and declare this. And so it has to be our core, our identity, our vision as the church is that Christ would be glorified in his church. It has to be that. There is no other reason for us to exist. It is that. It is the preaching, the love of, the worship of Jesus. 
Or as J. John says, if you take Christ out of Christian, all you're left with is Ian, and Ian cannot save you. I don't, no offense to any Ians in the room, by the way, okay, I'm sure you're lovely, but you're not Jesus. I, 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 I felt a small, I, I would say, whether it's a prophetic word, test it, please, guys, but I, I felt a, a small word as I was prepping this for you guys as a church, and it ties into this message, which is that, that we as the church, if, if we are to be the place of belief rather than unbelief, if we are to not be Nazareth, if we are to be a place that responds to Jesus as he should, one of the things that I think we need to recognize, and actually it's in the second portion, portion of the passage, is that um, it was not merely the um, aim or the goal of the disciples to go, well, Jesus, look, we really like you and we'll worship you as God and we'll be doctrinally like, good here. They actually were sent to go and take ground. They were sent on a mission by Jesus, and that was what they were called to do. Um, and I, I me, me and David, we met for, for coffee a couple of weeks ago. Um, and his vision for, for this church is something big, you know, and like you guys, you want to make an impact. You want to do something that, that impacts the city and you want to plant churches, you want to do things that are significant. I just want to urge you as a congregation to, to support that um, and to be here for that reason. Because I love your name. I love Foundation Church as a name. I think it's a great name for a church. Foundations are good, but the purpose of a foundation is to build something upon it, right? The purpose of a foundation and a good foundation can have a good big structure built on top of it. And so I understand we do not manufacture church growth and we cannot do that. It's God. God gives growth. But we do plant, we do water. And part of planting, part of watering is this congregation going, we want to see this thing grow and expand and be all that God has called it to be. I struggle with whenever people come to church and say, I like it because it's small. Because the kingdom of God is, is not a small kingdom. There's 10,000 times 10,000 gathered around the throne of God, a multitude that no one can number. He will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That sounds expansive to me, right? We need to have an expansive vision as the people of God. And so what I'm urging you, just, and I'll clo- this will literally be how I close, is faithful churches must also be faith-filled churches. So it is great to be faithful, but don't just be here because this church is faithful. Be here to get behind the faith-filled vision of the church, to impact, to grow, to advance. You've got it in the name, guys. You know, like be here for that, to say we see this group and we see, you know, 20, 30, whatever people, you know, on a normal Sunday, say, God, you can do more. God, you can build bigger because we need that in this generation. We absolutely do. So, as I said, Nazareth, a lot like our culture, a lot like us, in many ways they had a false familiarity, a secularized Jesus. They were offended at Jesus. They lost the blessings of Jesus. For us as the church to recapture, if we can, 
to do what we're called to do. We must be the place that says Jesus is God, honors him as God, loves him, declares him, and advances his mission on the earth. I'm going to pray and then I'll hand back over. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the, the, the gift of your son, Jesus, who is God and he is God in flesh and he is God who died and rose again and who has ascended and ruling and reigning right now. And Lord, we just worship you as that God. We just take a moment in our hearts right now to honor and love you, to worship you, to say, Lord, in an unbelieving place, we believe that you are who you say you are. We love you for being who you are. We love all of you. And Lord, we love you imperfectly, but Lord, see that it is sincere. Lord, would you pour out your spirit in this place. Lord, would you pour out your spirit that Jesus would be magnified and glorified in this church. Lord, would he be glorified in our lives. Lord, would we lift up the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.